time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. The ship came in, we climbed aboard. Um, I was told that the ship couldn't come in because of strong winds, would have pushed her into the dock, and you know, half a dozen different reasons why it couldn't come in, all weather related. Um, John Groh had to stand his watch at 8 o'clock. I had just finished mine according to the clock. You know, I worked a 48 watch, the mate's watch. So um, I went to bed. Uh, I was awakened about uh, 2.30, 3 o'clock, and uh, I went on board, and we were just uh, clearing the light ship when we went to Lake Huron. The weather was windy, the sea was a little choppy. Um, nothing for me to be alarmed about, but I was a novice sailor. I was only there three years, and uh, I didn't know what cautions everyone took or how tilt the weather was, I, you know. I stood in my 48 watch, after the watch, uh, went back to the galley and I brought something forward for the uh, first mate to eat and for my wheels to eat. And um, I had a bite to eat when I was in the back. And uh, I went to bed and uh, I was a pretty avid reader then and I, I pulled out a book and jumped in bed and turned on my light and read for a while. Um, at some point, I turned on my light and I went to sleep. Um, later that night, I heard this loud bang, and I thought it, perhaps it was the anchor hitting the bomb, so I just kind of rolled over. Because uh, your noises on the, on the, on the boats are, you know, you got a variety of different noises out there when you're, when you're sailing. Um, shortly after the first uh, loud noise, there came another one. And with this one, one my books fell off my bookcase. And I thought, well, you know, I better get up if it's going to start getting that rough. Uh, so I, there was curtains around the bunk, and I pulled the curtains back. And no sooner I get the curtains pulled back, then I, the general alarm sounded. And I could still see the sparks to this day of the hammer hitting the bell. Uh, probably hitting my heart a little bit, too. I stood up and reached overhead, and I grabbed my life jacket and put that on first. Um, I went out in the companionway 
And Albert Weenie, another watchman, was just coming out of his room. And we both walked towards the, the opening onto the spar deck. And when, when uh, Al got to the deck, he said, oh my god. And he turned around and went back into his room. I walked out onto deck to see what was happening. And uh, the wind was, the noise from the wind was crazy. Um, I walked over the cruise hall. And there was probably maybe four people over there besides myself. Um, one of the guys, Norm Bray, he, he was on the, in the Steinbrenner sinking. He was one of the survivors from then. He said, well, fellas, you said we better get in the life raft. Um, I remember looking at and seeing uh, the ship hog back where the midsection was higher than the stern. I, uh, I went into my room and uh, I wanted to look more, but I didn't know how much time we had. I went into my room and I, I felt around for some clothing and all I could find was my pea coat. I, I guess I was worried about the time and how much I had and actually how much clothes did I need. I knew I was going to wind up in the water and everything was going to be wet. Uh, I went back out onto deck and um, walked down the starboard side of the deck to the, to the life raft and I could feel the ice slushing up through my, between my toes. I climbed aboard the raft. I was probably probably fifth or sixth on the raft. Sitting on the raft, the noise was the wind and, and, and through the wires and the sounds the ship was making was, was unbelievable. Uh, I heard this noise and I looked over my shoulder towards the stern and I could see the, the one inch steel plate just tearing like a piece of paper. We all kind of just kind of laid down. Uh, I was in the center of the raft. Uh, in front of me was uh, John Cleary, behind my knees was Charlie Fossbender, and above me, behind my shoulders, was our Stojak. We just kind of all settled in until the waves started breaking over us. Um, there's no, no good way to describe that. Um, you go through a 30-footer, and you feel like your lungs are going to explode, and then you start, start getting air, and then that, that 60 mile an hour wind hits you. The air temperature was about 33, and uh, we'd all just cry out in pain, physical and mental pain. Uh, you just don't know what's coming next. And after two or three of those, you don't really care. I know at one point I just kind of let go, and I was hoping I'd be washed overboard. Anything was better than what I was having right then, you know. By dawn, well, the rest of the night after this series with the with the waves, we, we didn't talk too much. Uh, there wasn't there wasn't a lot to say. Uh, I prayed, as I'm sure the other guys did. I prayed for myself. I prayed for my family. I prayed for my friends, and I prayed for their families. TomSumnerProgram.com The TomSumnerProgram.com The TomSumnerProgram.com
Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and today marks the 45th anniversary since a uh, very famous Michigan shipwreck occurred, and that was uh, the wreck of the Edmund, Edmund Fitzgerald, which uh, everybody around the country knows because of the Gordon Lightfoot song. But uh, somebody who's been following this for a long time and has been on the show many times is uh, uh, video producer and uh, um, what other hats do you wear? Roscoe Clark joins me by phone from uh, up north in uh, Michigan. Roscoe, welcome to the show. Yep, glad to be here. Thanks. Um, Now, today is is the actual 45th anniversary, and you routinely attend an annual ceremony, and you're going to be doing that again this year, but with someone very special. Who's there with you? Well, uh, the cook that was lost on the last run, uh, we have her daughter, the cook's daughter, Pam Johnson. Hi, Pam. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to do this for you. How much of a shadow do you live under, Pam, because this is such a famous event? I always say it's bittersweet. I'm happy that I'm able to go do something to honor my father and the crew. At the same time, it can be sad because as that bell is ringing and we hear the dong that lasts kind of a long time, it brings tears to us and it brings us back to reality a little bit. It's been fun these last couple of days, but this evening we're going to be doing something very, very special. And uh, I think it's a time where we bring out all of our Kleenexes. And tell, tell me about the bell and, and what you'll actually be doing to commemorate this anniversary. Okay, they go by usually alphabetically, and my father's name was Robert Rafferty. So I'm a little further down on the list to ring. But what we do is when they na- say the name, they'll say Robert Charles Rafferty. And then I get up and go out and touch the bell and stand there till it stops. Um, donging, and then I sit down and they call the next person. Beautiful bell. Uh, it represents my father, the boat, and I'm really happy to be able to come up here and do this. I'm really, really grateful. And where did you come from to be here for this? I'm from Abilene, Kansas, a little town after Topeka, 6,000 people. Well, my mother was from Topeka, so I've been there. I've been to Abilene. Um, In fact, uh, Abilene, Kansas, isn't that kind of where... um, I'm I'm trying to think. There's somebody famous from Abilene. Um, Dwight D. Eisenhower. That's who I was trying to think of. Home of uh, Ike himself. Um, Yes. Anyway... um, so you will be uh, ringing the bell along with who else? Other other descendants of uh, people lost on the ship? Yes, it'll, I think there's going to be a lot of daughters there. Uh, I only know of two more that are coming, and because the COVID, we're really supposed to uh, not have too many people there. We can bring, like I'm bringing Roscoe because he drove me up. Um, we're pretty excited. We put our faces and names on the Facebook to let us know that we are the daughters of the men who died on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Now, are you from Michigan originally? I'm originally from Toledo, Ohio. Ah. And that's, my, that's where my father set out sailing from Toledo. 
Okay. And and the weather is a little different today than it was that fateful day 45 years ago. Yes, we could actually get in a bathing suit and jump into Lake Huron today. It's so nice. And the night of the storm, it was horrible, and the lights went out on the lighthouse. They couldn't see. And I'm just glad that God took them fast, and I'm sure they didn't suffer. I'm hoping that. Uh, Roscoe, with all the studying you've done of this event, um, what went wrong? Should the Edmund Fitzgerald have even gone out? Well, it was, it was more than that. The, the ship was under bad conditions. It means welds were breaking year after year, and so structurally it was not strong enough to do what it was doing. It uh, In the path that they took to avoid the hard weather, the big waves, it put them close to Caribou Island, which had what's called the Six Phantom Shoal and other shoals that were mismarked by a mile. And the evidence shows that it grounded where it hit the hard rock uh, of Lake Superior. Uh, the water was three foot lower that year. The, the Fitzgerald was about three feet, three and a half inches deeper than it was designed for by increased drafts. You know, they allowed more cargo every three years or so. And so when it grounded, it punched a hole in the hull and there was some other issues a few days before when they were unloading in Detroit, River Rouge, at uh, National Steel. Well, the bottom plate, a 20-foot section of bottom plate called the cargo bottom or the tank top, was ripped up accidentally. And the, it surprised the, the steel company. And they said, hey, we'll put three of our welders overtime. It'll take eight hours to weld the damage we called, caused with the big uh, unloading uh, gantry crane and they said no we have a special delivery we have to stay on time and they talked that to the third mate and then they left with a, a damaged vessel well that wouldn't be a problem until they grounded and when they grounded it punched a hole which flooded the whole vessel so within 15 minutes it had a major list right after it passed caribou island which was uh, where these shoals were and a, a guy named dick race he was hired by ogilvy norton columbia transportation filmed the damage that spring and i got to see it so we know for sure the fitzgerald grounded uh, and it caused it sinking because it sunk uh, pretty fast once it filled up full of water there was no there was no pumps or anything the crew could do uh, mcsorley was the captain and the u.s steel ship arthur m anderson was a few miles behind eight to ten miles and given radar navigation because the the generation the generators on the Fitzgerald was in the back, and the conduits, this boat 729 foot long, broke. It stretched and broke, so they lost all the navigations up front, all electronics. So they had the Anderson giving them radar navigation. And so around 715, the third mate of the Arthur M. Anderson, uh, that was the last radio contact with the Fitzgerald, and, but they watched him on radar, on the Anderson's radar. So after 8 o'clock, the vessel uh, disappeared, and they tried radioing them, and there was no luck. And then closer to 9, they called it into the Coast Guard. More with investigative videographer Roscoe Clark and with um, Pam Johnson, who is the daughter of Robert Rafferty, the cook lost on the Edmund Fitzgerald 45 years ago today, is straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bai from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. Fabulous 60s, the marches, the beans, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artist who made them famous. You're thrilled to Society's Child by Janicean, Pleasant Ballet Sunday by the Monkees, What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, Silent Night, 7 O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel. Who can ever forget this all-time classic? Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War, all for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jefferson Airplane, Lotharian hand people, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, cold in protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... It's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something will tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70 Do it today. Tom Sumner, program.com. The Tom Sumner, program.com.
This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with investigative videographer Roscoe Clark and with um, Pam Johnson, who is the daughter of Robert Rafferty, the cook lost on the Edmund Fitzgerald 45 years ago today, is straight ahead. Now, did I read someplace that it that it actually broke in half? Well, that's a misconception, and we've been talking about that. The, the Fitzgerald had three cargo bays, a large one on the front, a small 200-foot one in the middle. I got the blueprints here, and then a large one in the back. The middle one was filled with a special cargo that came from way up in Canada. And uh, we, we, the only place that uh, Ogle, uh, that train was hauling for was uranium ore. So most likely the Fitzgerald in the center cargo, which was in metric, where the where the taconite on the front and back was in Imperial. I looked at those loading records. Um, it may have exploded. It was a, a big flash that the Anderson seen that night. And when you look at the Coast Guard reports and the underwater video, 200-foot center sections, like, not there, disintegrated, totally disintegrated. But the boat's about 180 foot apart, and some of the metal wire rails are still connecting the bow to the stern, which is the front, you know, where the pilot house is. Right. So it, it, it dived. It dived down into the water and, and for several hundred feet, trenched like a snowplow. They dug about 30 foot in the bow. And it's uh, upright, but the stern, the back where the prop is, an almost 19-foot, 6-inch prop, is upside down. So when they first found the Fitzgerald with the nuclear bomb Curve 3 ROV, a 6,000-pound ROV, that the Navy allowed the Coast Guard to use to search. This was a nuclear bomb recovery ROV, and they allowed the Coast Guard for a civilian shipwreck to use it. So that gives you a kind of hint what was going on. When they came down there and, and first located it, because uh, they had airplanes that had uh, magnet uh, magnetometers on board so they could get a close location, 17 miles northwest of Whitefish Point. Lines up with Coppermine Point and uh, Chris Cross, uh, Chris Point. And uh, so that's it's in Canadian waters about a half a mile. Now, what's interesting is only two shipwrecks in the Great Lakes out of 6,000 shipwrecks are banned. Edmund Fitzgerald's banned. It's 729 feet deep. A scuba diver virtually cannot dive that, you know, because of the, the mixed gas and the pressures. But if you did dive it, it's a million-dollar fine and a year in Canada's prison. What are they not wanting people to see? All the shipwrecks that are out there have bodies. You know, no disrespect to any bodies, but there's bodies on virtually all the shipwrecks, but those aren't banned. Fitzgerald's banned. One of the divers from... And it's, um, and it's always been alleged that the ban was out of respect for the bodies that there, that it was a burial site. Well, it, it, can, it can have that, but that's a good cover. And you could get a couple family members to go with that and, and make that happen. It sounds good, but it's a whole lot more. Now, Fred Shannon, he's from Mount Morris. He rented a sub and spent several days out there. And he told me that there was clay dumped over the center cargo area. And if that's true, who dumped the clay and what were they trying to cover up? When I went for permits a few years ago with the Canadian culture that controls that, I got I was getting permits. I was going to send a probe down to test for uh, radiation, and they stopped me cold. It's cold right then and there. And then I was going to look for paint samples over by Caribou Island, and that's under permit, Canadian waters. It's a little Coast Guard, unmanned Coast Guard island out there in the Superior. 
and they said I couldn't uh, touch the bottom. That's like 28 foot. I wanted to get a paint sample to match it to the Fitzgerald's paint to prove that it grounded forensically, because remember, I do forensics. And so everything we do has to be proven. It can't be hearsay or imagination. It has to be forensically accurate. And that's what we go by. And they stopped me on that. So there, there's a whole lot more to the story. Uh, the, the 50th anniversary is coming up in five years. And all the hundreds of hours and interviews and documents that we've collected, we will put it all together. It will all be made public. So I, I figure that the, the 50th anniversary, that will be the time to bring all 10 years of research on this. I did 10 solid years and, and interviewed a lot of people. Some people are dead now because, you know, it was quite a while ago, 1975. Pam, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Yeah, Pam, forgive me. What's your last name? Johnson. And uh, is that a married name or is that the same name as your uh, your father? No, my father, father's Robert Rafferty and my name is Pam Johnson because okay. I'm married to William Johnson. Gotcha. Just want to make sure that I have these names straight. And your dad was uh, was a cook. Yes, sir. He uh, was a steward. He he was a steward on the boat. And that's um, had he always had that had that job? I mean, throughout his career, or um, was was he uh, more of a, a sailor? Sailor. No, at this point, he was a temporary steward. Uh, the regular guy refused to go. Uh, he could see some things in the, um, I'm going to call it the basement of the boat, where he could look out and see through, and he could see the water and the trees that were out of the boat, and that scared him a little bit. And he decided he wasn't going to go for the last run. They called him up. He said no. He did have bad feet, and that's what he used, but he really said he didn't want to go because he knew how bad the, the boat's condition was. And uh, his name is Red Bergner, and he's passed away now. Um, he told us a lot of stories about the boat and how it, the different things that could have happened there. He was very informative. He'd been a cook on there for 10 years, and my dad was called up because Bergner wouldn't go, and then Richard Bishop was there, and he had bleeding ulcers. And so they called up my dad, and he was on there a short time and wanted to get off. He said it was haunted. He wrote my mom a postcard. It was dated November 8, 1975, and it said, Should be home by the 9th. However, nothing is certain. Love, Bob. And my mom got that postcard on November 10th. And to this day, we have never been contacted by anybody to say that boat sank. We heard it on the news. I was going to ask you about that. How old were you then, Pam? I was 23. And... um and no one called and notified and said that the ship was missing or anything at all until you heard that the ship had gone down. Well, actually, I was down in um, Fort Benning, Georgia. My husband was in the Army, and uh, I was really pregnant with my fourth child. I was <laughs> really pregnant, pregnant, huh? Yeah, eight months pregnant, <laughs> and I decided, decided not to go. I regret that decision so much now. There's a lot of people there. I would have wanted to see, but I stayed back, and the baby was born 36 days after the sinking, and um, his name is Jeremiah Johnson. So we had him, and my husband went on to Germany, and then I followed him with my four kids later on. Have you gone to this event uh, every year or most years? No, sir. I went on the year, uh, well, it was 25th anniversary, 20, 2000, 
And um, then I went in 2005. But in the meantime, I'd been helping Roscoe out with his services. I speak up there. And, oh, one time we made a cake, and we served it to all the guests that were there, and it worked out really well. It was from my dad's cookbook. Oh, it was in River Rouge. And uh, that cookbook was left by mistake, I think, because he left so quickly that he failed to bring it. And it was written in January of 1942. And one of the pages says, because the sailors are getting sick now, we must now refrigerate our meats. <laughs> and this was in 42. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, yeah. So then, um, had when was the last time you saw your dad before he was lost at sea? He came down to Georgia in March of 75, and um, he stayed a couple days at our house. Uh, we lived in Fort Benning, actually. He stayed for a couple of days, and as he drove away, and it's in a book called The Gales of November, I told the author that when I saw him leave, I said, I'll never see him again. And then we find out he passed. And and what gave you that that feeling, Pam? Um, was it Was it just a sense that he was getting older and life's going different directions, or did you have some sense of foreboding i felt because he was getting up in age he had ill health and he had been a temporary steward on different boats for several years and i think he was just ready to retire as was captain mcsorley also and we're both from toledo so it was very unexpected and my dad had said he did not want to be on there and they wouldn't let him get off well under the circumstances i understand that so he had to stay but he had a premonition premonition that he did not want to be on there and he stayed of course what else could he do when you when you were growing up pam did you have a real awareness about shipping and um just that whole life of of uh transporting things by by ship on the great lakes yeah, I think it was part of our lives. As long as I can remember, we were always taking my dad to Bay City, Lorraine, Ashland, you know, just different places to pick up boats. And so I knew about it, and it got more exciting when he would pull into Toledo Port, and we would get to go on the boat, and he would always have goodies for us to eat, and food, any kind, anything you wanted. And the captain would always say to me, whatever boat we were on, you got to stop eating that butter, it's expensive. <laughs> Because I love this butter on the boats. <laughs> now, there were a lot of boats that wouldn't go out that late in the season. Was it unusual for uh, for a boat to, to be out at, uh, a week or two into November? I was thinking that, but I realized it was going to be the last run. Uh, but, see, I wasn't thinking about that. I had my family. It was down in Georgia. And I was at a neighbor's house when my husband got the call and I was next door talking and he come over and said I had to go home and I went home I thought he wanted to go to the drive-in so I picked up the Georgia or Fort Benning newspaper and it said 29 men are lost at, at on Lake Superior and he said your dad was on a boat and so I called my mom right away and did I you think I did you know right away when you saw that headline that that was the boat your dad was on Yes, I did. I just knew that was what he was brought me home for. And so I called my mom, and I think I reverted back to about a five-year-old because I said, is my daddy dead? 
because I just didn't ever, ever think that would ever happen. He's done all, all those years of sailing, and nothing happens, except he did fall between the boat and the dock one time and broke his leg. <laughs> I, I think every sailor's done that once or twice. Yes. Um, in in um, How long had your dad been a sailor? I would say pro- I, the last thing I have of his is a 1959... Um, Union card from the Seafarers Union International, but uh, that fifty nine would I would have been seven years old, so I don't really remember. But my half brother says he was sailing for a long time, um, maybe in the sixties and fifties. Um, I really wouldn't know that. I didn't care back then. Well, I would just I was just curious if if he'd had a long career or if that was something he had gotten out of something else and, and into that. Was that something nope. he did all his life? I believe he did all of his whole life. He was a um, a cook on the boat, and he took classes in the wintertime. He would bring home all his pastries and goodies and then teach me how to make them. And I've been a cook my whole life in my career. And um, Roscoe, um, some of the other people that will be going to this uh uh, that will be at this event today, or, or this evening, rather. Um, how far away do people come from for this, and how many of these have you been to? Well, this is the first time I'm going to be at Whitefish Point, where the, the Edmund Fitzgerald actual bell is. Oh, really? So this is really now, now, there yeah. is an event that you go to. but well, I, is, put, put on, I put on the events in Detroit for or River Rouge, where the ship was built. That's what I'm the, thinking of. I did that for 10 years, and then we did some at Dawson's Museum and up in Bay City. So I, I put on various events, and I'll be attending this one as a guest. But there's something else that's going to be special tonight, um, which was sad because Pam's grandson that came to the uh, Edmund Fitzgerald Memorial here in Michigan in River Rouge, uh, sometime after that got into a car accident and was killed. Now, he was how old? Uh, 14. 14 years old. So Pam has brought some of his ashes here and is going to sprinkle that uh, this evening in, on the waters of Lake Superior. And then we also got some lim- liminaries uh, where you light them and they float up. So these little uh, floating uh, lighted lanterns were going to, uh, Pam and, and some of the other family members were going to light them. And the winds are blowing out into Superior. So we'll watch that until they go out as a is a membrance so there, there's some other things that pam's doing and some of the family members uh that we're going to do to you know to pay our respects in, in in a special way roscoe tell me the significance of uh whitefish point and and um river well, rouge all, and all, and some of these different locations what whitefish whitefish bay is a big bay that's sheltered from the storms so everybody was trying to get to Whitefish Bay so they'd be sheltered from 30-foot waves and 100-foot, 100-mile-an-hour gusts. So at that point, it's a point, a peninsula out there, they, they got a lighthouse there, original lighthouse for guidance, and if they made a museum, a museum there called the Shipwreck Museum, and there's all kinds of stuff of Great Lake history, but when the bell was recovered off the top of the Edmund Fitzgerald, it found its home they're at the museum, so they uncover it with this big acrylic glass, and only one time a year, which is tonight at 7 o'clock to 8 during the service, 
Uh, it'll also be webcast if anybody wants to. You'll go to their site. You can watch this uh, up here. Up here in Whitefish Point, in the Upper Peninsula, it's also TV broadcasted live. What is that web- site, Roscoe? Um, I posted it on my Facebook page, but it's the Great Lake Shipwreck Museum. Okay. Uh, in okay. White Point, so there's links there. It's free. You can watch it from seven to eight tonight, and it's um, it'll be really interesting. You'll have Coast Guard. There'll be some special speakers. A very limited crowd because it's not open to the public like it used to be because of the COVID this year. And th- so and that's a, and that's unique to the the pandemic condition. Yeah, this is the first time it's been closed to the public, and I'm you know as a guest with Pam, and they're going to allow me to be there, which is you know I'm so thankful and excited about it because I, I had not experienced that. And that hear the actual Fitzgerald Bell that the crew members heard, you know, because the bell is the voice of the the boat. They call them boats in the Great Lakes, no matter how big they are, and they call the sea boats ships so i learned that in the beginning they said these weren't ships the edmund fitzgerald was not a ship well, what do you mean we, we call them boats because they're in in the great lakes they don't go out to sea and i thought okay that that's interesting so we learn we learn a lot of stuff as we go um have there been any lessons learned from the wreck of the fitzgerald with regard to how long the season should be and under what conditions ships should and shouldn't sail and the construction of ships themselves or boats i should say the construction inspections keep in mind the arthur Anderson that was eight miles behind fitzgerald in the same terrific storms only had a lifeboat bracket bent everybody else suffered no damage it was not the storm that sunk edmund fitzgerald it was a defaulty poorly maintained structural failed uh, boat and it was carrying a heavy cargo in the center 200 foot what was the cargo uh, our information that we've got from uh superior wisconsin where the ship was uh burlington northern dock two was uranium ore in the center cargo and taconite which is round half inch marble looking ceramic coated pellets for the steel industry they melt it down and make steel in detroit at river rouge at uh, it was national steel there now you know zug island and is that so, where the boat was headed yeah it was headed there and it left there a few days before and that's where the bottom uh, or the tank top the half inch steel they the gantry cranes these big huge clam looking things come down scoop up the marble looking taconite the cargo and it caught the edge of a piece of metal called the cargo bottom which seven foot below foot below that is the bottom of the vessel so it's like the tank top has to be watertight it ripped up a 20 foot section i mentioned that earlier and they did not have the time because of that special delivery now when the fitzgerald didn't get into the sioux locks there was a government car there with with two people in in the black suits and uh, asked about when's the fitzgerald coming in and they didn't say why but it, they, they stood out and they looked at the plates the people that worked there and had government cars he stuck around for a couple hours and then left. So that probably was a check-in point for that cargo. So pretty interesting. Well, it is interesting um, because we, we, of course, we always think of uh, iron ore. And, of course, the pellets, that, that's a big thing coming from the UP downstate for the, uh, for the auto industry. Yes, Flint, Michigan depended on that, you know, that steel. For our automobile, so the Fitzgerald has a direct connection by supplying the iron ore 
from Upper Michigan in Wisconsin or in uh, Canada, and they process it, and then uh, they ship it down in these big uh, boats. Now, the Arthur M. Anderson was a self-unloader. The center had a conveyor, and it goes to the back, and it goes up, and it conveys. The Fitzgerald wasn't a self-unloader, but it had to be unloaded with a scoop, a you know, gantry crane, a scoop that scoops it, picks it up, then runs it and dumps it in the pile over and over. Then they put a bulldozer down there to rake, you know, bulldoze all the loose stuff to one area, and then they clean it right up. And they had 21 hatches. Uh, they're about 12 foot by 45 foot. There was 21 hatches, and it was divided into three compartments, but they weren't watertight. That meant if water got into one, it would go through the whole boat. So that was a downfall. They, they changed that. Uh, Edmund Fitzgerald didn't have R&D, research and development. And so how it came about was they built it one foot less than the Sioux Locks, 725 foot long, 75 foot wide, and it drafted about 18 feet. Well, the architect, Ray Ramsey, that came to Flint, Michigan several times, that worked on the Fitzgerald, he's a naval architect, was very disturbed when that boat was side-launched on the Detroit River. In the, he said it had a 17-inch uh, crown to it, and that was a, it alarmed him, and they told him, hey, you came from England, you're a young guy, you got married, you shut up, you don't uh, talk about this. So he was forced not to talk about it, but he kept the files. And just a few years ago, I, I met up with them, and then I got the files and a lot of uh, background information, and we worked together for several years. He died uh, three or four years ago, but we've got a lot of information that we could have never got any other way. Matter of fact, the, the Mr. White, Whitey, they call him, he was the foreman of the launch, and he gave me his 16-millimeter film of the vessel being built. So I've got company film that's never been seen by the public. All, and and uh, we did interviews, about 100 hours altogether so far. So I got a lot of background information. So I don't use the you know, UFOs, the Three Sisters, all these things that are fun to listen to. We're using forensic facts with documents and right. lots of interviews by the people. Now, the welders over in Wisconsin, uh, a, a month or so before the Fitzgerald was lost, went in for a secret repair. It was never filed with the Coast Guard, but they were there for two weeks. And the, they, the welders that I talked to said that the, the metal was so rusty they couldn't even weld. The side plates were coming off the frames, couldn't weld it, even with hot welds. So there's a, there was a, Fitzgerald had a lot of problems, and so, but they ran it, you know, because it was owned by, it was owned by Northwestern Mutual Life in, uh, in Wisconsin. It was uh, an investment for their investors. And then it was leased to Ogilvy Norton Columbia Transportation. Well, they didn't have to do the maintenance, so no one really maintained it. So it had a cracking issue. Down in the bottoms, the welds were breaking from the bottom hall, which was about over an inch thick, and it kept breaking. And so this vessel was in bad shape. More with investigative videographer Roscoe Clark and with um, Pam Johnson, who is the daughter of Robert Rafferty, the cook, lost on the Edmund Fitzgerald 45 years ago today, is straight ahead. The Tom Sumner Program.com
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. 
Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman study sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name this was This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with investigative videographer Roscoe Clark and with um, Pam Johnson, who is the daughter of Robert Rafferty, the cook lost on the Edmund Fitzgerald 45 years ago today, is straight ahead. And what are you going to do when you got a vessel that's got to make money? It spent like $6 million to build the vessel. It broke a lot of records, the fastest, the heaviest. You know, it was called the Toledo Express because it was so fast. And how they did that, how they broke these records year after year, they would cut the fuel down. You know, instead of 50,000 gallons of uh, bunker C, you know, bunker oil, real thick kerosene uh, fuel oil, they would go to the least amount to get them from one place to the other without running out, hopefully, and that allowed for more cargo. And that's how they were breaking these uh, records. And the, the mates that, that uh, we've interviewed that didn't go down with it said sometimes they worried that they're going to lose fuel, you know, and then they'll end up uh, floating out in the, the waterways. Fitzgerald did use an, lost an anchor once down in Detroit, and Don Erickson, the captain of the William Clay Ford, they asked him, they said, where do you think this anchor would be when it was in layup down there? And he pointed, if I was uh, the Fitzgerald, I'd put it right there. Fox, uh, Channel 4 and 7 did it live down there. You know, we're going to find the Fitzgerald anchor. Lost the, you know, it's down at Dawson Museum now, and they found it exactly where Don said it would be because he's a captain of a of, of a boat similar size, and they know what what you're going to do when you're a captain, you know, where you can park things and sure. hold up. Hey so Pam, yes? pa- Pam, what did you think when you first heard the uh, Gordon Lightfoot song? Well, this is a strange one. I was already in Germany by that time. And my mom had called me and said Gordon Lightfoot had written a song. And, of course, I'm in Germany. I'm at the NCO Club. Um, that chance that I would hear it there. But sure enough, they played it. And people got out and started dancing. And that irritated me. And then mm-hmm. I had to let that go because they didn't know. And now I rejoice when people get happy when they hear that beautiful song now. That had to be uh, a little bit surreal. Did yeah. you did you ever meet Gordon Lightfoot? Oh yeah, I met him in the year two thousand. He was at a concert in Salina, Kansas, and the radio station interviewed me because they knew oh. who I was, and they gave me front row center seats and backstage passes. Well, I had friends that wanted to come, and so we all got tickets free by maybe um, little guessing games on the radio. That's how we'd get them. And so there were six of us, and we saw the concert, and I did do something that they found strange, and I do it every time, is when he says, and all that remains are the faces and the names of the wives and the sons, and I always stand up when they say daughters, um, just to be honoring my father. Um, I've done that, oh, I've probably seen him ten times. I've flown down to North Carolina so that my older kids could meet him, and they were five and four years old when my dad died, so they kind of remember him. And so we got backstage. Every time I go, I just call Canada, and they remember me, and they just say, how many you need? And I'll say two, three, four, whatever. And when I get to the place, the venue, I just tell them who I am, and they give me the tickets and the passes, and I'm on my way. <laughs> 
Have you gotten to know some of the other sons and daughters over the years? Yes. Uh, during these events I've done with Roscoe, we've had a, um, quite a few come up and join us. And one of the funnest things I thought we did was in June of 2008, we did a service where we uh, were celebrating the 50 years of the launching of the Edmund Fitzgerald. We had everybody there, some of the past workers, some of the people who uh, sailed on the boat, the workers. Captain Erickson was there. It was We were just loaded and filled to the brim with people coming out to respect and honor the Edmund Fitzgerald. We had a great time. Do you know if there are any special plans for commemorating the 50th anniversary? That's just a short time away now. Well, Roscoe has set up something here. Uh, we're going to probably do it in River Rouge again. It'll be huge. And uh, we hope we have a good crowd. Um, I've been asked to go up to Whitefish. Um, I'm doing it this this year for Whitefish, but I probably will stay with my old friend Roscoe here. He's never let me down. We've always had good services. And one year we actually baked the cake uh, and took it out to the service. And we from your dad's recipe. It was from my dad's cookbook, that 1940 yeah. cookbook. And that was the year that my Isaac was there with us, and he helped us make the cake and. You know, he's just little. I think he was probably 10 or 11. And then within the last two years, he got into a bad car accident and was killed. Hmm. And I, I'm going to take his ashes and spread it so he can be with his grandpapa. Well, the, the Edmund Fitzgerald is going to be 17 miles northwest of where we're going to be, uh, you know, in a, in a few minutes. But northwest, that's where it rests. You know, so it's, you can look out there. And you could see the location. It's easy to see. So the resting place. Well, Pam, um, Pam Johnson, uh, daughter of uh, the cook on the Edmund Fitzgerald, Robert Rafferty. Pam, it's been an honor and a privilege meeting you. Thanks for uh, sharing some time and some of your memories with us. It's always my honor to be able to talk about my, my, my beautiful dad. I miss him so much. Thank you. And, uh, Roscoe, it's always a uh, pleasure talking with you, and I always learn stuff. Well, you appreciate it. It should be quite a, an event tonight, and uh, we're putting little Facebook posts in as we do things, so uh, very nice, and people can look at it later if they like. Okay. Investigative uh, videographer Roscoe Clark will have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <music> gathered the crewmen so they would know the reason that he well intended to turn the ship around and go back to that fury in hopes that some sailor would not have to drown I know I'm the captain and you all would follow Wherever I order, whatever I say We have beat the wind's terror And reached the base shelter But Fitzgerald's gone missing Within the cruel wave He stood with arms folded Waiting for an answer His mate plotted course Back out to the lake Each man was in favor 
The Anderson was stormbound, searching for sailors. Whatever it takes, oh, the Arthur M. Anderson still sails the water. Captain Cooper's gone now. In '93 he died. Another skipper charts her, the ship he loved so dearly. But the legend of Cooper and Fitzgerald didn't die. Whenever the storms rake the lakes with their vengeance, the spirit of Cooper remains in command. Now Cooper is a legend on the bridge of that vessel. He held to the rails as the seas ripped her side and left Whitefish Bay for the grave of Fitzgerald, knowing in his heart that every man had died. Bernie Cooper was a captain of historic tradition. He knew well that sailors were all brothers at sea So facing the winds, he risked ship and crewmen Returning to danger, finding only debris Oh, the Arthur M. Anderson still sails the water Captain Cooper's gone now in 93 he died, another skipper charts her, the ship he loved so dearly. But the legend of Cooper and Fitzgerald didn't die. Whenever the storms rake the lakes with their vengeance, the spirit of Cooper remains in command. Sunsets on Huron to dawns on Superior Along the autumn rivers, gold lining their sides As the freighters glide slowly, their holds deep in iron Oh, the waves whisper quiet where many men have died But as long as brave sailors still sail the waters Bernie Cooper watches as each station is manned And the night watch hear footsteps on the bridge of that lady Who no finer captain will ever command Oh, the Arthur M. Anderson still sails the waters Captain Cooper's gone now in 93 he died, another skipper charts her, the ship he loved so dearly. But the legend of Cooper and Fitzgerald didn't die. Whenever the storms rake the lakes with their vengeance, the spirit of Cooper remains in command.
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hi, I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 